today I'm really excited. We get to talk to someone whose number of works that I have read, who I've learned a great deal from. And, and I just asked, would you like to come here into the dojo and, and just have a conversation about a lot of things that we both are interested in? And he agreed to, which is amazing. Uh, so we have the author of Abraham Silence and the author of A New Heaven and a New Earth, which I have the Kindle copy, so that's the why it's on my iPad. But uh, among many other works, those two especially that I've read and really enjoyed. So I was excited when Dr. J. Richard Middleton, biblical scholar extraordinaire, decided to agree to come on and talk with us here at the dojo. So welcome, Dr. J. Richard Middleton. Do you go by Richard, J. Richard, by, Dr. Richard. Middleton? Richard, I go by Richard. <laughs> Richard, I, I go by J.M. or James Michael. My family, and when I'm in trouble, people say James Michael. Right, right. Typically J.M. for short. I right. answer to either equally. But Richard, it, it really is an honor to have you. I found you through our mutual friend Carmen Imes' recommendation. She recommended one of your works. I picked it up, and I believe it was New Heaven and New Earth and started reading and I was just every page resonating with like, this is someone who's doing theology and scholarship in a way that really resonates with how I approach theology and scholarship. And it was just, it's one of those where it was refreshing. Then I started following you on Facebook and we've had a couple of back and forths and it's just cool to connect even though it's virtual here. So welcome to Disciple Dojo. How are you today? Very well. It's really wonderful to meet you finally. You know, I know that you and Carmen have known each other a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, I met her only a few years ago when I was the vice president of the Canadian Society of Biblical Studies and had to give out the award for best book of the year, which was her academic version of the Bearing God's Name at Sinai, the one that mm -hmm. came before it. And that's when I met her. And I realized this is an amazing scholar. Yeah. Yes, yes. She, she and I, we, we were at church together and she was finishing her, I had just finished seminary and she was starting her seminary and we had some overlap here in Charlotte. And then her star has just shined brightly over yeah. these past few years. And I love it. I told her, I, I love getting to watch people that I knew or studied with or had, you know, some interactions with over the years, really getting known in yeah. the Christian world. And so I think that's amazing. Now, tell me, tell the viewer, because this is really viewers, if you're watching this, I want you to meet Richard and to get to know him, not just his work, but also who he is as a person, because biblical scholars are people and they have personalities and they don't just sit in libraries and hold magnifying glasses over papyrus. They actually are full orbed, interesting people. So one thing that viewers are going to notice, because we're based here in the South in the Bible Belt, you, your accent is not a Southern U.S. accent. So where, where are you from? Where did you grow up or yeah. how did you, you know, give us a little background on you. Well, I'm born in Kingston, Jamaica, and immigrated right. to Canada later on. Then I come to the United States for work. But if I talk like that, people didn't understand me, so I adjust my accent. <laughs> so I'm a fourth-generation Jamaican on both father and mother's side, father's side from Germany and England, mother's side um, Jews, fleeing the Spanish Inquisition, came oh, wow. to the British Caribbean. Uh, they used to go, they went to um, Brazil when there was a Dutch part of Brazil that was a safe haven. And when Brazil was given to the Catholics, the Inquisition came and they came to the Caribbean. So a long time ago, my mother's family 
came to Jamaica. We don't know quite how long ago. Wow, that's fascinating. And I had mentioned it to you. I, I have met a number of Jamaican people over the years, wonderful people and uh, in college and in seminary and in travel. I've never met somebody who's Caucasian with my skin color. What was that? normal was that different no, was that where you did you grow up just like yeah this is just what life in jamaica is like or did you feel yeah so that's it's diff difficult to explain because it's like having a fish explain water right it's what you grew up in i was only aware of how unusual it was after i left jamaica oh, okay. and was living in canada then the u.s so you live there and people have all kinds of skin colors, even in my family and my friends, a whole range of skin colors, not a whole lot of people with my skin color exactly, but a few, right. you know, but um, the church I go to uh, maybe 250 people and maybe four or five have my color. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, your friends are not based on the color of your skin, <laughs> all right. kind of other things. So you don't really think about it. And the, 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 the motto for Jamaica is out of many one people. Mm -hmm. And of course, nobody living in Jamaica today is original. The originals were the Taino or the Arawaks, who are, they, they were pretty much killed out of Jamaica. They're, they live in other parts of the Caribbean, but everyone in Jamaica is an immigrant in some form, either mm -hmm. through um, British colonialism or slavery or later indentured laborers. My grandmother's family, the Germans, came as indentured laborers to Jamaica wow. in the 19th century. Uh, so you, you grew up in a, in a culture, in a church, and I went to undergraduate seminary, and there's a range of different kind of people. And I grew up, you know, in the, I'd say the early 70s is when I was a young teenager, by the late 70s, uh, older teenager. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the context of black power in America. Mm -hmm. I grew up where Jamaica is trying to throw off British culture and own its own culture so a lot of black consciousness mm -hmm. um rastafarianism is becoming very popular i had a lot of street dialogue with rastafari on the streets of kingston as a teenager mm -hmm. you know so you look in that culture you're aware of racial differences but the biggest issue is really ethnic that you are not part of the dominant british culture the older one or the newer north american culture mm -hmm. that we're all, all being sucked into you're trying to maintain an identity separate yeah. and even going to theological school our big issue from day one is how do we contextualize the gospel for our culture and not just imbibe the american version of that mm -hmm. yeah that's fascinating that i i under when you say you grew up not realizing it you know like a fish in water it's i grew up in um south georgia in savannah georgia but my father was an inner city pastor so me and my sister were the i think the only white kids in our church and in our neighborhood until i was you know into maybe ele later elementary school and there was i remember early on i was aware that i had black friends and you know they, their hair felt different than mine and their mm -hmm. skin was different than mine and i burned in the sun and they didn't you know just these mm -hmm. but it wasn't I didn't really notice it until I left and mm. we got transferred to a predominantly white, almost all white neighborhood and church. And then I realized how unique that upbringing was for most people who are white, mm -hmm. uh, which, and that was the late 70, early eighties. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, but it, it's cool. I think it, and I, you might agree, like having growing up in a place where you're, you're not the dominant ethnicity or you're not mm -hmm. the not everybody looks like you it really gives you a different kind of an appreciation for what other marginalized group that mean you can relate to the struggles of whatever group because you can't fully mm -hmm. but it does i think it gives a window 
or at least makes you more aware of kind of what I call white normality. Uh, some people call white supremacy just the idea, especially in American culture and, and North American culture, that whiteness is kind of the default and yeah. anything else is, you know, other. Um, right. And that's that's a that's a mindset that's I think we as a country as a society are really wrestling with that right now, and people are getting uncomfortable with the idea that what they think is normal is not the norm for everybody. Yeah, um, it took me my my guess was it took me six years of living in North America before I could understand internally what a white person in North America thought and lived like i couldn't understand it they were alien to me actually oh, yeah. so you know I, I would hang out with the other caribbean people but yeah. also with africans and some african americans mm -hmm. who we had connections i didn't fully understand their culture either but i couldn't quite understand this this as you say the white normality as if that's supposed to be the norm right. because we learned we had to resist that and learn a new way to uh, be a christian in, mm -hmm. in god's world yeah that's uh, that's fascinating. We could do a whole podcast just on cultural dynamics and, and the gospel and contextualization and all that, um, maybe in a future episode. But yeah, future. I, I so real quick, how so most people go the opposite route. They work their whole lives to leave North America to get to the Caribbean. That's the dream is to, to, to retire in paradise. So you growing up there, how did you end up in North America and how in, in Canada and, and, and you're in New yeah. York now, right? I mean, yeah, upstate New York. So mm -hmm. let me just correct you, first of all. Okay. Only it's really only Trinidadians who say Caribbean. Everybody <laughs> else says Caribbean. So gotcha. Almost well, I'm, I'm part yeah, Trinidadian. There you, there you, oh, there you go. That, I, <laughs> I'll give you a blight this time. Man. I'll give you a blight. <laughs> Thank all right. you. I was in high school. I was an artist, uh, visual oh, artist. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, so I, I love the arts. Um, I, I did poetry. I began writing poetry in my last couple of years of high school. Mm -hmm. I, was, I played, learned to play guitar, but I have a terrible ear for music. Otherwise, I would be a musician because I love music <laughs> that much, but terrible ear for music. Uh -huh. um, so uh, I do rhythm really well. I should have done drums. <laughs> <laughs> Every worship band I've been in, they, they say, watch his hand. Don't watch a drummer because the drummer speeds up, but he's steady. <laughs> I can do rhythm pretty well. Um, I can do regular rhythm, all that stuff. So I was doing my undergraduate theology degree because my mm -hmm. church said, look, you love Jesus. Don't do something secular like art. Go to seminary and study the Bible. <laughs> so I was there, but I didn't really want to be a pastor. I was the only person in my year who was not going into church ministry. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I, I fell in love with the Bible. Mm -hmm. From being a really mediocre high school student, I got straight A's my first semester. I said, there's something about this that I can really get my teeth into. Right. But as I studied and, and fell in love with, with scripture and so on, I, I realized I was imbibing an atmosphere with that, that said I was a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God because I was not doing full-time Christian ministry. Mm -hmm. But I know that in the Bible, God created all things that were very good. He didn't say some were better, some were worse. He didn't say some vocations are better. And we all say, you know, the, pur the purpose of the pastoral ministry is to equip the saints to do the ministry. It's an every person ministry. Yes. But this, although in creation and redemption, we have a kind of democracy of in our vision. In practice, mm -hmm. there's a hierarchy. And I, had to I started to feel second class. So I decided to explore scripture for a theological grounding from my life in the ordinary world, whatever that would be, and ended up becoming a teaching vocation precisely in the areas of study that I found most helpful to me in clarifying my vision. And that was twofold. Everybody was studying the New Testament, you know, but I wanted to look at the old because the old is so gritty and earthy and it's the ground of the new. 
And I wanted to study philosophy because I realized a lot of philosophical concepts came into Christian theology, um, particularly the Platonism that said we transcend the world to a higher realm, uh, which is, a, you know, the, 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 the idea of ascent to God is not in the Bible. God descends to us. Right. And, and so I want to study both Old Testament and philosophy. And I did it the other way around. I did philosophy first because hmm. I knew less about it. And, and uh, my family was moving to Canada. This was during the oil crisis in the 70s. Okay. And I was able to come not as a student, but actually as an immigrant. So I could work as well. Mm. And um, after doing my a lot of campus ministry to support myself and doing a degree there, I came to the States to do PhD, which crashed and burned. And I went back to Canada to do more campus ministry and realized, you know, woe is me if I do not finish a PhD and go into academic teaching, because that is what I was felt called to. So I found a degree and started that. And right after I finished my comps, I got a job offer in the U.S. So I came to the U.S., slowed down my getting my Ph.D. by, by um, uh, many, many years. Yeah. But at least I had a job. And so that's how I moved around. Um, but I still kept contact with Jamaica. We go back at least once a year. We didn't go back during COVID. And I've taught courses in Jamaica at the seminary there. And I'm an advisor for theology programs there. So I keep the connections. And I also keep connections in Canada. So I'm, I'm a Jamaicadian. <laughs> I have three citizenships and three ethnicities. The best of all three. I'm a hybrid. <laughs> you, you, you've got this hemisphere covered pretty much. <laughs> there you go. The Americas, right? All of them, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. So what was your first, you said you got a job teaching before you got your PhD. Yeah. What was that job? What was that role? How did that work? So that I, when I had gone, I, I started a PhD originally at Syracuse University. And it was a humanities PhD where you took your, your master's program, which was in philosophy, and you connected to another humanities degree, in this case, religious studies. They only had one Bible scholar. They are a very good Bible scholar, but only one. And I wanted to do this joint program. Um, that didn't work out. Like 20 things went wrong in the first year. And I had to leave my own mental health. And at that point, I said, what can I do now? My wife is finishing up her master's at Cornell. So we're in the area. So I found in Rochester, New York, which is where I am now, that Colgate Rochester Divinity School, which is where the social gospel came from in the 1920s with Rauschenbusch, okay. had a program in biblical studies. And I came over, I took a couple of courses. It was fantastic. I fit in really well, though I'm an evangelical, not a liberal, and it's a liberal seminary. And I learned my biblical scholarship there. Um, and then I went back to Canada to work further as a, a campus minister. And then finally said, I got to now do a PhD. And so I found another PhD that was sort of interdisciplinary also. Mm -hmm. So shh, I don't have a PhD in Bible. <laughs> I have to have a PhD in interdisciplinary theology where my comps, for my comps, I had to talk about Derrida and, and all, all the French philosophers. And then I did my, my dissertation in Old Testament because I already had the coursework from Colgate Rochester. So I'm 10 years later, I've left Rochester. I'm in Canada. I get a letter. Richard, one of your professors is retiring early. Would you like to come take his position? Because we know who you are. Uh -huh. I was a TA for all these professors and so on when I was there. So I came back and I started teaching while I was doing my PhD. That's um, really in, cool. In, in Old Testament. So you finished, when did you get finish your PhD? I finished my PhD when I was 50. <laughs> all right. So, you know, you know, if you're on a long journey, take mm -hmm. courage, my friends, uh, persevere, <laughs> stick with it. I, I mean, I was learning when I started teaching. I never taught courses in the whole Old Testament. So I had to learn how to do that. So I'm doing new course prep for years. Right. Mm -hmm. And by the time I get my, my 
things are working well with the teaching, I realize I really only have two months every summer to work on a dissertation. Hmm. So I did, and I, I, I finished it, and I submitted it, and they changed my advisor on me at that point. A new advisor comes in and says, don't you know that Old Testament is not a theological discipline? It's a historical discipline? You're doing Old Testament theology. And I had to argue my way to say, <laughs> all right, anything that I could change to match what this professor wanted, I would do revisions for. The rest, I would hold my ground and explain more deeply why looking at the theology of the Old Testament is not a matter of imposing later ideas on it. It's looking at its own intrinsic theology for its own time. That's mm -hmm. what I'd argue about. And so the book, The Liberating Image, was my dissertation. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's there's the whole concept of PhD, and I, and I talked with Carmen a little bit about this as well. Is is one that a lot of people it's it's kind of like learning to be a wizard. You go off and study <laughs> arcane texts and secret yeah. stuff, and then you appear one day and you're just a doctor, yeah. a PhD. And so there's a lot of curiosity, especially among people who are theologically minded. Like, what is the process like? And Carmen had explained in our previous interview about her process and hearing yours is great too, because it's a completely different completely route. Different, yeah. um, there wasn't, isn't Richard Baucom? Didn't he also not have a PhD? I think his PhD was in something not biblical yeah. studies as yeah, well. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. I can't remember. There, there are yeah. a few, somebody mentioned that on Facebook. There were a few very highly regarded scholars whose uh, PhD is, or whose primary training was in different fields. And yeah. then they made the switch and, that's really I mean, neat. So just one more thing. So I never hid myself away like a wizard and came out fully formed. I was doing campus ministry mm. and, and preaching in churches and teaching in churches, the Bible, the Old Testament. So by the time I got to my PhD, I already knew what I thought about the Bible. I was not this, you know, green student having to kowtow to the, the disciplines right, in the right. Foucauldian sense of being disciplined. I said, I resisted. Maybe it's because <laughs> I'm a Jamaican. I, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. And so I made a deal that I was going to publish my dissertation as a readable book. Mm. And I published it before I defended. Mm. That is <laughs> and, not the norm. And, and when, when the new advisor came in and said, you got to do it this way. I said, look, I've already presented six papers at SBL. And I know what I'm doing. And I got feedback on those papers. So I'm, I can argue my point of view to you. And at the defense, he said, you know what? I think I agree with you more than I realized. <laughs> <laughs> That's a successful defense for yeah, sure. Yeah. That's cool. Yes. People's, people's scholarly journeys are so different. And some, some it's a, they just feel like they're being poured into. And some, they mm -hmm. feel like they're resisting and having to battle their way to. And then some, it's a combination of both. And yeah, I, it, yeah it interests me. I, as a Bible nerd, I think this stuff is fascinating. And I have not ruled out eventually going on for further degrees. I'm still mm -hmm. just a lowly MDiv, but uh, I've thought about, you know, at some point uh, where God may be calling. Yeah. But right now, at least he's saying, no, you're, you're going to popularize what they're doing yeah. and get it out to people. So I'm happy. That, that is a really important vocation that you have. And there's no singular path to a PhD. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to have a PhD to be learned. I, mean, I had philosophy professors, excellent classics professors, but no PhD. Mm. You would never know it. They right. master's degrees, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's encouraging and fascinating. Um, and I, hopefully, you know, people are getting a little bit more of, of your background and, and that people, I always want to encourage people to think about higher education, biblical education, um, even even if they don't do it professionally or yeah, academic, yeah. you know, but just yeah. 
auditing courses at seminaries and, and, you know, going to Bible studies that churches offer or ministries offer and things like that. I didn't know your, your, was your, did you say your undergrad was in art or that you? No, no, I, my undergrad was in theology, but okay. a bachelor of theology, kind of like a liberal arts degree with a okay. theology pastoral major within it. Yeah. Gotcha. My undergrad was art painting and okay. drawing okay. and I came into uh, art to seminary to whatever it is yeah. we call what I do now. So uh, another kindred spirit point when you said art i was like oh yeah there's a more reason i like this guy but you're for those that don't know you're this is this your this is your latest book right latest book it came out yeah. last year in november yeah abraham silence i got this when it came out and i read it and that was actually as i was reading it is when i contacted you initially about doing this because it was it was a really good book not just i'm not giving a generic plug like oh this is a guest and he has a good book it it really is an excellent book that i i again i, I resonated with it i found it refreshing you were raising points that were similar to things that i had either taught or said or felt before mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so it was there were a lot of aha or those those moments like cs lewis talks about when you see someone and you're and you finally realize oh you too like that's the mark of right. two people meet and it's very cool so that was my experience reading your book was like oh you thought about this too and so i want to pick your brain a little bit for the viewers about abraham silence can you give just like a, a third your quickest way how you would describe somebody watching this program who's hasn't heard about your book what's the one sentence or two sentence summary of what you're trying to say in it you know that's that's hard it's a little bit <laughs> took me a while to figure out what's the unity of this book mm -hmm. so the book addresses the question of what is your stance towards god in a time of suffering mm -hmm. and it takes you through the lament psalms and the book of job to finally end with the question why does abraham in chapter 18 of genesis protest god's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, mm. God's planned destruction, but does not protest when God says, kill your own son. So Abraham's silence stands out like a sore thumb against the background in the Bible that God wants a vigorous dialogue partner. Mm. So it, it's both a theological pastoral study of how we should pray in times of suffering and an exegesis of the books of Job and Abraham's, um, the Akedah in Genesis 22. That's what I found so fascinating about it was it was like a mini Job commentary and also a commentary, not, not really a commentary, but a survey of the lament Psalms and the passages of lament in scripture. And then a discussion, a, a kind of zoom in focus on the incident between uh, Mount Moriah with the Akedah. It was that I'd never seen those linked together the way you did and, and, that's what I really did appreciate that about it. Tell me, um, so a couple of points at the beginning of the book, you talked about, and this is what I really resonated with because I went through the same thing. I, I went through a period where for over a year, this was between when I was considering going to do a PhD and I had stepped down from my job at the church and was doing online like Facebook interaction ministry. I would have people email me, people from my church would email me questions and even though I was no longer the discipleship pastor and it wasn't mm -hmm. my job, I would still respond and do stuff. And I was leading Bible studies, but there was a period, maybe like a half a year, maybe a year where I just was not hearing anything from God. Didn't want to study. Praying made things worse. Reading scripture made things worse. Uh, people asking me Bible questions. Everything was just like, 
Dark Night of the Soul. And one of the bright points that I found during that time was Psalm 88, mm -hmm. which is, of course, the ironic because it's the most depressing psalm in the Bible and it has no, barely a glimmer of hope in the whole psalm. But yet for me, that was one of the things that kind of sat with me in that dark period. And then there were, then I were, then I was getting glimpses of what I, you know, theologians call common grace in <laughs> other non-biblical things. I watched movies, classic movies. I read novels. Um, I, I just kind of took myself out of Bible teaching world mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I started to slowly be able to feel again and, and to my relationship with God, getting it back on track. So in the book, you talk about going through something similar, a dark period. And, and you mentioned also Bob Marley, that there was a Bob Marley song that resonated with you, whereas the Gloria Patri that you were singing in church was having the opposite effect. So could you talk a little, you can get as personal or as impersonal as you'd like, mm -hmm. but I'd love to hear a little more about that in your life. Right. So, so I touched a little bit on the issues. It was when I did that PhD that crashed and burned, right? Mm -hmm. So I just moved from um, Canada, Guelph, Ontario, where I did my master's, to Ithaca, New York. And I was commuting to Syracuse. So it's an hour and a half commute um, in, through the upstate New York countryside with one little piece on a highway. Doing that every week, staying a couple of days in one place, a couple of days in another place. No friends. Everything goes wrong with the program. <laughs> Everything goes wrong. And... Um, I come back home to Ithaca where my wife is studying at Cornell. And then she actually go, leaves to go do research. She's in public health. And she went to Jamaica and Grenada to do her master's research on iron deficiency anemia among mm. pregnant mothers. So I'm there alone. I got no friends. I'm going to a church that I don't really know. Everything's going wrong in my life. And I just realized I had stopped praying. Mm. Then I told you I found Colgate Rochester. This, and my first course is the Psalms. And this professor, Werner Lemke, he hasn't written a lot of books, but he's written a lot of articles. And he's teaching on the Psalms. And I read Psalm 88. And like, I'm thinking, crap, this is me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is me. I'm not, a, I don't know what this guy was going through, but that's where I was. And the dean of students at the, at the seminary had died of cancer the previous semester. I'd never met her. She was in her 30s. The whole school was grieving. So we're supposed to do, among all our academic projects for the Psalms course, uh, some kind of project that's more practical. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'd like to do a, a service of lament to grieve the passing of this dean. And it was structured around Psalm 88. Mm -hmm. That service of lament grieved not just the death of that psalmist, that, 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 um, that dean of students. It also grieved my loss of purpose after my Ph.D., and through that, I started to come back to God and pray again and also found our biblical resource, the Lament Psalms, to use in teaching and in counseling. And not long after that, a couple of years later, I counseled two women who had been multiply raped by their male church parents and uncles. Jeez. I could not have done that if I had not come to the Lament Psalms, which helped me address that kind of pain. I don't know how good a counselor I was, but I could I could be with those people and we could talk through and pray through those kinds of experiences. So that was that was what happened with me. Now, yeah. um, this is part of the, the grittiness of the Old Testament. 
it's not just earthy. God wants, God looks at the earth and says, very good, gives us an earthly vocation here. And God wants to redeem creation. Uh, New Testament is very Old Testament-ish in that way. Mm -hmm. But now, even the, the depths of the suffering, the ways in which this good world of God is out of whack with God's intent for the world and how we process that. We don't need to say, to sing glim hymns, hymns of praise when what we really need is a primal scream of rage. And I find that um, reggae particularly, not the, you know, there's all kind of reggae. There's pop reggae, there's superficial reggae, but there is also conscious reggae that addresses real issues of identity and meaning in an unjust world. And Bob Marley is one of those. And so the song One Love, which is actually a commentary on an R&B song, which is totally positive. But in this song, he changes some of the lyrics and one of the one of the things he says along the way which is not part of it what he changes the lyrics is is as it was at the beginning so shall it be in the end one love mm-hmm. now the gloria patri says you know uh, praise to the father son and spirit as it was in the beginning shall evermore shall be one world without end what that means is that the trinity continues forever but the way it's phrased rhetorically and the way it's heard in the church is that the world as it is continues forever without end and it gives you no hope if you're in an unjust society. So Marley at least says the world today is not the way the world is meant to be, mm-hmm. but it's going to be different. And that gives me hope. Mm-hmm. And for me, reggae music is what's closest to my soul. Good, good roots reggae, as we call it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know if you, you know, but it, I, I even heard a song on the radio today that sounded like reggae, but it wasn't really reggae because reggae, you know, it's a four beats. And on the third beat, you have to have a distinct what they call the one drop, if you know that. So whatever's going on, so on the second and the fourth, you have the guitar or the keyboards, but the drumming is going along and then the drum does a hard third. And that's what makes reggae. So even No Woman No Cry, which does not have the second and third, second and fourth choppy stuff, has that third beat, the one drop. That comes from Rastafarian drumming called Nayabingi drumming, where they drum that way and then they pause for the fourth entirely. That is what gives me deepest hope. If I could be in a worship service that uses Nyabinga drumming, I would oh, praise wow. God even more. But I am not, because I'm not a Rastafarian, and none of my <laughs> churches, they're, they're kind of classical liturgical churches I go to anyway. They don't right. do that. But so I, I find that music, especially Bob Marley, but also I found um, the Canadian singer Bruce Coburn very helpful to me, especially his early work. And some of you too, some of the early you too, I find very helpful to me as secular sources of inspiration hmm. because they're not superficial in the way they talk about reality and God and the world. That is, that, it's cool to hear not just an evangelical, but an evangelical Bible scholar affirm that there is truth that can be found in the wider culture, even in the pagan culture. I, you know, I have to tell people, Paul quoted pagan poets, you know, John alluded in the revelation to pagan concepts and, and poetry or songs scripture. I mean, God in the old Testament, the series we're doing now on YouTube, old Testament images from the ancient world that the authors of scripture appropriate in ways mm-hmm. to communicate about God this isn't anything new, but yet in America, you know, in the fundamentalist, modernist controversy, it was this get out of the culture. Don't do anything. Don't look at, don't watch movies. Don't listen to worldly music, all that stuff. And I think it really stunted the theological growth of generations of Christians who could have found a lot of truth. I I find so much beauty and truth in, you know, comic books and Akira Kurosawa movies and hip-hop jazz and hip-hop are my two music forms that i listen to so 
it's when I when I look at, and this is what I want. I'd like to hear your thoughts. When I in evangelical churches, whether they're liturgical high church or more contemporary, you know, kind of like a, a somebody said a, a Coldplay concert and a TED talk. Um, <laughs> the, when I go to either, there's the one thing that both are missing is genuine lament and 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 the crying out that you can't you can hardly turn a page in the bible especially in the old testament without seeing someone or readings yeah. about someone crying out to god authentically yeah. why do evangelical churches do you think have such an allergic reaction to lament when it comes to corporate gatherings that's a great question it's a great question so i think it has to do with a couple of things um, we tend to think that we live in a New Testament era when Christ is raised from the dead and we have victory in Jesus. Mm -hmm. So the victory means we can't be honest about where we're still in the valley. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but you know, there, there is a wonderful book on lament in the New Testament called Jesus Wept by Rebecca Eklund. It was her dissertation. And she's written a shorter version of that. Um, what is it called? Something lament. I forget what the verb is. It's a Whitfenstock book, Cascade um, companion's book. So the New Testament also has lament. And when you read the passion story of Jesus, the gospel writers have interwoven lament psalms the whole way through because they have taken things like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, which speak of God anointing his, his you know, king on Zion and all the nations will submit, which is the kind of messianic motif. And I said, that only applies to Jesus after the resurrection. But before the resurrection is the lament psalms. He is the, mm. the righteous sufferer who unjustly suffers and cries out to God on the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And God intervenes to raise him from the dead. So we falsely jettison the Old Testament and think we live in the victory of the new, not understanding it's a complex process. So at one level, it's bad biblical interpretation. Mm -hmm. But at another, another level, it's we have imbibed our culture, which is a culture which cannot look pain in the face. It wants, you know, quick, 20 second solutions to everything. Mm -hmm. And that's the way we think. And so we are, we are uncomfortable. Um, uh, Prince Philip, who you know, passed away a while back now, mm -hmm. um, last year, I think, said that he used to go in, in lines where people are shaking hands, they would say, how are you? He'd say, my mother just died. They'd say, oh, that's very nice and walk on because nobody's listening for your pain. He would test mm -hmm. it that way. And I've tested that in church, you know. I, mm -hmm. How are you? I'm really crappy today. Oh, that's really nice. And they move on. Or sometimes they stop. What? I mean, mm -hmm. somebody was being honest for once, you know. Mm -hmm. So we're not used to being honest for a lot of complex reasons. Mm -hmm. I have done lament services in church. And it opens people up to pain and to tears, but also to hope. Because to know that you are in a tradition, a community, going back thousands of years of people who cry to God with their pain, and God embraces that and wants that, that says, my pain is not an aberration that mm -hmm. I should suppress. There is actually, uh, the God I believe in is more merciful and loving and compassionate than I ever imagined. He wants me to bring my pain to him, both in private, but also in communal worship. I mean, these Psalms were sung in communal worship in the temple at some point, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they were, they, it really, I mean, the, the past few years, especially this has stayed in my mind, my discomfort 
with churches and, and I'm not bashing church. I, I'm a preacher's kid. Mm-hmm. I'm born and raised in the church. This is definitely an in-house critique, mm-hmm. but it, it, fr- it's, it's angering me the, the longer it goes that churches don't see the redemptive benefit of lament. I mean, even the most basic counselor knows when somebody has a good cry and just balls their eyes out after that, there's a sense of relief and a sense yeah. of healing that just naturally happens because of mm-hmm. the release. And so in all, you did campus ministry. I did campus ministry before seminary at, at the Wesley Foundation at the University of Georgia. We were, we, we, it still is the largest campus ministry in the country. And we would have, at, when I was there, we'd have 400, 500 students a week. Now they're up to, I don't know, 1,000 or 2,000. But we sang some amazing songs the worship band, this was in the late 90s. They were, it was starting to play some of the contemporary stuff, but there was one song I remember. It was, it was called There Must Be More. And the whole song was just a cry of, God, there's got to be more than what I'm experiencing because I'm beat down. I'm tired. I'm weak. I need your grace to work in me. And that's it. There was no happy ending. There was no nothing. That's the only song in 25 years now in a church corporate setting that I've heard that, that expressed that kind of pain. And I still wonder like, why hasn't, why haven't more churches keyed in on this churches that should, and that do know better when it comes to counseling or funeral services. I, you know, I've been to churches and and part of church that does amazing funerals. They, They really do see funerals as a ministry and and they're everything a funeral should be, but yet you're never going to get that depth of of pain ever expressed on a Sunday morning, right? And that's what it's still. And I'm not picking on any one particular church. That's in my own experience, spans churches. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned a song called "There Must Be More." Now I don't know if um, this is the same song, but I mentioned Bruce Coburn. Bruce Coburn has a song called "There Must Be More." which oh. is a scream. It's a yeah. scream of pain to God. Um, you know, um, that may be the same song. It may not, but I recommend that song to people. It's so on I, the album. Shoot a link to me after this and yeah, I'll check yeah. it out. And, see. and in fact, the name of the album is humans. Mm-hmm. It's about being human. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's that the, we the thing that we all have in common. Yeah. That's yeah. why I, I, so I, I didn't, I did not grow up appreciating poetry. Uh, I was a purely visual artist and, and music I can appreciate. I just wasn't good at it, but poetry, I just never, it wasn't my thing. And I realized English poetry isn't my thing. But when I started learning Mm. biblical poetry, especially when I learned Hebrew, uh, when I started to learn Hebrew, I should say, I, I consider myself still always learning Hebrew, but I started being able to appreciate poetry for what it is structurally and how it communicates things in Mm -hmm. a somewhat Mm -hmm. abstract but very specific way and the poems in the bible like a third of them have to it has to be a third at least are lament and our anger or frustration with god or begging god to act um do you think that do you think that part of the reason that Christians, evangelical Christians shy away or, or kind of run away from that has to do with a prosperity mindset or a name? Like, I don't want to, I, you hear a lot, I don't want to speak negativity. I don't want to speak negativity. I want to speak positive. And I've heard preachers say, 
when the psalmist says, praise the Lord, O my soul, and they make a point, that's an imperative. You have to tell your soul to praise the Lord because your soul wants to be sad. And so you have to make your soul cheer up and praise the Lord and this and that. What do you, as an Old Testament or biblical scholar, what do you, what do you think of any of that? You know, that's that kind of exegesis, that kind of biblical interpretation is like when you're doing the, um, the, you know, the man who fell among robbers, he said, a certain man went down to Jericho. You know, are you certain, brother? You know, I've heard those sermons. I heard those sermons as a teenager, you know. <laughs> you I've never certain. heard that example, oh, yeah, but that's yeah, a that's brilliant a, example. <laughs> so, you know, you can read all kind of foolishness into and out of the Bible if you really want. But when you look at the pattern of Scripture, it takes mm -hmm. sin and suffering seriously and doesn't always say suffering as a result of sin. So there's nothing wrong intrinsically with articulating suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. But, you know, there are... Yeah, I could get into. I don't want to get into all the details of this stuff. I'm going to let you guide me with a question. Okay. Well, yeah. I yeah, I just one thing I I want Christians, especially evangelical Christians, to to do more is sit with that suffering and and sit with the uh, Job's friends. You know, when they got off the rails, when they opened their mouths, when they sat with him, that was good. And then things kind of they started introducing all their ideas about God. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about Job in, in just a second. I, there was one thing on page nine of your book. You talk about how you see biblical scholarship and your historical studies and all of that stuff. Some people think of it as dry and academic, and you see it as you use the term, use it's spiritual formation. And that really, really got an amen from me. I think I underlined it twice in the book uh, because I have always been made to feel by some people that there's head knowledge and heart mm -hmm. knowledge and you right, really need right, heart right. knowledge the head knowledge isn't that important and i and now knowing hebrew and 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 being able to exegete the text can say well no head and heart are the same in hebrew it's yeah, all yeah, your yeah. heart it's a heart but yeah. how is academic study specifically for you what do you mean when you say it's spiritual formation right so let me i'll just back up with it i'm not speaking of academic studies in the primary sense of going to a school and, and, and you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Intelligent grappling with scripture, whether it's in an academic setting or not, mm -hmm. is already serious study of the Bible, if it's intelligent. And so I, I mean this in two senses, that studying the Bible with your mind can be spiritually formative. One, we got to be grounded in the big story of the Bible. And two, we got to be wrestling with individual texts, even difficult texts, to grapple with them till we find a blessing from them. So the big story and the little. And that's connected to the title I have as a professor. It's Professor of Biblical Worldview. That's the big story. And exegesis. That's the grappling with the individual texts. So the big story of the Bible is meant to be normative for our identity formation. By indwelling this narrative of meaning, we become who we're meant to be as Christians and live out the mission of God in the world. Because it's an antidote to the alternative stories that our culture feeds us, and sometimes our churches feed us. And these alternative stories of meaning, whether they're left-wing, right-wing, progressive, conservative, doesn't really matter, they're all idolatrous. Hmm. And a lot of what the church is teaching is also idolatrous, either because it says this world is of no value to God, so it's an you know, escapist theology, or the flip side of it is prosperity gospel which is a very individualist, consumerist version of this world is important to God. These are all false narratives. So if we take our cues for who we are and what we're called to do from the larger biblical story, 
That means we've got to really study the Bible in some depth, in community, because no one person can figure it all out on their own, right? And indwelling that large story gives us a sense of grounding for the future. But then you can never just study the whole bit, whole Bible at once. You got to go text by text. You got to go to individual texts. And a big story gives you framework for reading individual texts. But every time you study a new text, it contributes to your sense of the big story. So I'm thinking of, you know, the um, Jacob wrestling with the man or the angel or God, depending which text you're looking at. It's said different ways by the river. And the best analysis, well, not analysis, the best recounting of that story is Frederick Beekner's novel, Laughter, where Jacob is telling the story of his father. Isaac means laughter. Mm -hmm. And it's about um, the wrestling by the river. And it's that chapter should be read in place of Genesis 32 anytime you're going to preach on it because it's so powerful. He's down in the mud wrestling. He doesn't know, is this God? Is this my brother Esau? Is this a demon? What is this? I don't know. But he doesn't let go till it blesses him. And that's the way you got to deal with the Bible. But you have to grapple intellectually. You have to ask, what is the meaning of this text in its actual language? And if the different translations don't agree, you don't know Hebrew or Greek, you got to do some research on that. Then you got to ask, what is the historical context of this text? What do these words have meant? to an ancient reader, not just read what we think it would mean today. And then when you, once you've grappled with that, then you have to ask, and what do I take away from that as a blessing? Mm -hmm. what, how does it relate to my life and the life of the church today? That's what I mean by wrestling. You know, when you just read the Bible in a superficial way and you feel good about it or you feel something from it, I got to say that's a waste of time, in my opinion. That does not contribute to my formation as a Christian, but serious struggle with the Bible in its details and understanding the thrust of its narrative is what grounds me in my faith and changes me and empowers me to live out my faith. That forms me and shapes me to be a person of God. That's what I mean by biblical studies as a spiritual discipline. I mean, I want to just put that clip in front of my Bible for the rest of this video series <laughs> and let it play every session because <laughs> in our, our graphic for Bible for the rest of us, our logo is Jacob wrestling the, the okay. that image. And the whole concept is uh, if you're not wrestling with scripture, you're not reading scripture because yeah. there's going to be something in it that's going to make you go, wait a minute, wait, I don't know how I feel about this. Right. I don't know how this stands. So I could not agree more with everything you just said <laughs> completely. And you, and, you, and you never figure it out from one wrestling. You got to keep coming back and wrestling mm -hmm. over and over. So there's a quote I use toward the end of Abraham's silence by, from a Jewish sage, an ancient Jewish sage. I want to quote it for you guys. Mm -hmm. Turn it over and turn it over again for all is in it and look into it and become gray and old in it and don't move away from it because you've got no better portion than the scripture. Yeah, that is beautiful. You Who never that? give up. His name is Ben Bag Bag. It's a wonderful name. <laughs> the son of Bag Bag. I, don't know. I like that. It's, it's, it's from the, the Mishnah. That's, that is. That's beautiful. Man, that's so good. Well, there are a couple of things, too, in the book that I want to, I want to make sure I hit on some of these and just get your thoughts. Because these were things sure. that stood out to me as I was reading. One was you talk about the, a change that happens in Exodus between the giving of the commandments and the golden calf incident and God's mm -hmm, response mm -hmm. to that. And, and this is what I, I wanted to kind of, in a friendly, respectful pushback, you say the, after Exodus 34, the Sinai covenant becomes an unconditional covenant. And that seems to strike me as, I, I don't know, because when I read Deuteronomy, I see so many 
conditions to the covenant and Israel remaining in the land. And then other, I just finished Ben Witherington's biblical theology, and he was very big on the covenants are all conditional. So I wanted to say, I wanted to give you a chance to explain and unpack what you meant by yeah, that yeah. and whether you disagree, agree, or there's a shade of nuance that I was missing. Or, or what do you mean when you say the covenant yeah. became unconditional? So exegetically, I'll tell you what I mean. Then theologically, I'll tell you what I mean. So exegetically, okay. it's simply that um, after Israel worships the golden calf, God wants to reject them from being in the covenant divorce them, if you will. Mm -hmm. Moses intercedes and God says, all right, I'm going to stay with them. And there was a new revelation of the meaning of the divine name in Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7, where God speaks of his overarching love for Israel, um, using terms like chesed and rachumim and, and all these kinds of stuff, beautiful words. And he also says, I'm a God who forgives sin, even to the thousandth generation. Mm -hmm. Before he had said that I keep covenant with those who obey me to the thousand generation but now it's I, I i give love and forgiveness to the thousand generation so there is a shift from the ground of the covenant being conditional to the ground being pure gratuity what the shift is this it doesn't mean there are no more conditions god wants us to live a certain way that's what the torah is for mm. but the torah is not you don't get rejected from the covenant for disobedience for idolatry because that's the key disobedience you know serve the lord or serve idols so mm. In these ancient covenants, you know, a king made a, a treaty with another another king. You must, you know, be faithful to me. And treason will get, you know, you get whapped if you right. treason us. So idolatry is like treason. But this says, even with your sin, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to. You're going to be consequences. So this turns up in a number of places in the Bible besides the shift from Exodus 20 to 34. So and, and basically the shift is not that there are no conditions. It's that what looked like or was presented as a covenant with conditions turns out to be at its root a covenant without conditions in terms of its basis and there's a certain sense in which do we do we say it got changed or it always was unconditional i'm not sure which way to put it that way mm. um if we had more time i'd get into that but let me give you an example you've mentioned deuteronomy all right so i don't think this is at odds with deuteronomy at all there are consequences for covenant disobedience in Deuteronomy. They're listed in chapter 20, 28, I think it is, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, but unfaithfulness to the covenant does not abrogate the covenant, even in Deuteronomy. Because after they go into exile, that's mentioned in Deuteronomy 29, there is the, the possibility of coming back from exile and being part of God's people again. So there are consequences for disobedience, but it's, it's, it's very similar to what God says to David in 2 Samuel 7 when he makes a covenant with David and his line, he says, you know, you will always have a descendant on the throne. I will not retract my chesed, my covenant love, from your descendant if he sins, as I did with Saul. That's why you're now the king. It's going to stay. I will punish him as a father disciplines a son, but you will always have a descendant on the throne. That's the same kind of shift. The covenant with Saul was conditional. He, he screwed up and he's out. But God says, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to make it unconditional because you're going to keep screwing up, right? And so in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God commands the Israelites, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts and don't be stubborn any longer. Now, men could have an external circumcision, but anyone can have a circumcision of the heart. It's about turning your will wholeheartedly to God, being committed in the inner person, not just in externals. You got to do externals too, right? When you get to Deuteronomy 29, 
their exile and because Israel has not been internally circumcised. So the commandment, you shall circumcise the foreskin of your hearts, has not been followed. When you get to chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, verse 6, when you come back from the land, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength that you might live. Because you can't do it. Hmm. So what looked like a, a, a conditional covenant at the beginning, you must become faithful. You got to do it. God said, I will do it for you. That's the same shift between the breaking of the covenant in Jeremiah 11 and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 that will not be like the old covenant because you broke it. There's similar stuff going on in Ezekiel also. Mm -hmm. So there are these shifts from what seems to be um, you need to obey or you're out to you can't obey. I'm going to do it for you. Now, the, mm -hmm. the Exodus 34 is a little different because the, the basis of God changing our hearts is his forgiveness of our sin. So in a certain sense, that shift is the fundamental shift that's elaborated elsewhere in the Bible. And when you come to this shift, don't say one is the Old Testament, one is the New Testament. Well, no, the new covenant is already for Israel. Mm -hmm. It's for the post-exilic people. It's fulfilled in Christ, we say. But you know, the command community thought it was fulfilled in them. They cite the new covenant for, for their own community also. Right. So that's what I'm getting at. And I don't think it, it contradicts what you're thinking of. Mm -hmm. The, the covenant basically is un, in unconditional and it's rooted in God's grace. And we cannot lose our place in the covenant by disobedience. Right. Yeah, it's it's I, I need to think I definitely need to think more because it was it's a different way of coming at what I think is a similar concept. And, and I, there's more of the unpacking and the wording that I need to do in my own head to kind of the relationship between the two covenants and or the old testament the new testament and and jesus and israel mm -hmm. those that's one of to me that's one of the most complex issues in all of biblical yeah. theology and that's why there's such wide divergence among writers and scholars right in, right. in how they're trying most are trying to say the same things but coming from different starting points and, right. and just how you phrase something can have all kinds of connotations depending on how somebody reads it. And so that's why I like what you're saying as I'm listening to you. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So it'll be a case of, yeah, now how do I uh, integrate all of the, the moving parts? Right. But, right. And I'm not sure I've stated it in the most clear way, but I'm working towards a, some clarity mm -hmm. on this. I, I do have a paper I've written on this is not published yet. That's trying to look at all of these texts together. And the way I look, the way I look at it is this: If you want to get a good analogy for Christians, go to *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* by C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. Okay, the death of the traitor is required because of the deep magic from the dawn of time. Right. But there is a deeper magic from before the dawn of time, and that's wow. the the grace, the unconditional nature of the covenant. What seemed conditional is actually grounded in something that's more basic. Mm -hmm. So I use that analogy to try and explain that shift. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I would love to hear, uh, maybe at an academic conference or something, they can get some you and some others together and have a panel discussion on sure, this concept sure, yeah, or a yeah. workshop. That'd be interesting. Um, well, let's, uh, let me ask you a couple more points from the book. This is one that commonly gets asked. On page 57, you talk about God relenting. And mm -hmm. some mm -hmm. people, when they read that, immediately they think, well, that can't be what that means because God is perfect. He's immutable. If he changes his mind, that means he changes, but God can't change. So they come at it from an Orthodox theology right. that says, 
it, it has to mean something other than what the text is actually saying. How do you approach passages where God seems to change his mind, where yeah. he's grieved? Do you think those are legit? Do you think that's just the author of scripture accommodating human language yeah. for an omniscient God? What do you think of that? So let's start by saying that the doctrine of the immutability of God is not orthodox theology. Mm. It, is a th it is a later theological construct. Orthodox okay. theology is the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, um, Chalcedon. That I'm right. pretty orthodox. Now, um, no, no greater a scholar than, than Walter Morbelli from Durham, mm. who has written on the Old Testament a lot, a very classic centrist um, biblical scholar, mm. has said, you know, it is so common in the Bible that God nachams, that's the verb that means repent or change your mind, that when Samuel, and I'm working on the book of Samuel, when Samuel tells Saul in chapter 15, God is not a man that he'd ever nacham or change his mind, that stands out because that's unusual. Usually God is always changing his mind. Anytime somebody prayed, Moses prayed, Lord, don't destroy them. He said, and God changed his mind and did not do the evil he had planned. King James says God repented of the evil he had planned. Mm -hmm. um, of course, repent doesn't mean he's repenting of a sin, but he's right. changing. He's doing a different course of action. Instead of destroying them, he's going to forgive them. And the evil, the word ra or ra'ak, does not have, mean always moral evil. It can mean disaster, anything that's negative, right? Sure. So it is so common in the Bible that God changes that it's unusual when you have Samuel saying God won't change. And in fact, I think God Samuel is misrepresenting God at that point. Oh, interesting. I, I'm working on a, on, a, on a book on Samuel because mm -hmm. the narrator and God both told Samuel that I have changed my mind about Saul and rejected him from being king. And then he says, God, not a man, he ever changed his mind. So Samuel is not on the same page as God. Mm. The prophet, there's slippage between the prophet and God. So what is going on there? No, I believe that ultimately, in an ultimate sense, God doesn't change. God's character never changes. God is a God of love. So here's my analogy. You have a child you've raised, and the child has become an adolescent, and the child has become a drug addict and a criminal and, and is resisting you. But you, in your love, want to relate to that child. You're going to change your way of relating to try and bring that child back. You could just say, screw him. He's out. I, you know, get rid of him. And God could have just said, I'm going to wipe out the world and just, <laughs> it was a bad idea from the beginning. Why have people? They're so evil. But God was grieved in his heart at the, the violence before the flood. The flood is a new beginning. From that point on, God is going to live with suffering. The knife would have been piercing his heart ever since. Because if you live with your rebellious child and try to bring redemption, you will not only experience pain and suffering, you have to change your modus operandi how you relate to the child. So God is constantly adapting how he's going to relate to his rebellious people throughout history because his character never changes. He's a God of love. So what's immutable about God is love, his moral character. What constantly changes is his way of relating to us because he is love. A person who never changes in relation to someone they love means they don't really love them. You have to always adapt. You think of a marriage. As you both grow over time or any friendship that you have with someone, you're going to grow and change. If you don't adapt to match that person in some way, you don't love them. If you're going to say, I don't care what they change. I am who I am. I'm going to stay here. That's not love. So I think we have some unbiblical views of God, which have come in and distorted how we read these kind of texts. Yeah. That's a great answer. I, yeah, I completely agree. I think the doctrine of immutability has never struck me as something that I can reconcile with Scripture. 
uh, in, at least in the way it's stated in some of the later traditions, because God does. It, it, I like how you said it. God's char- God changes his actions because his character doesn't change, you know, and, and we do and we do respond in all different ways. And so he has to adapt in his relationship. I, that's why I do see that there is some accommodation happening, but I don't think it's this fictional. Oh, God didn't really change. That's just right. the only way the writer could describe it. Right. Uh, that, that's part of that wrestling thing, you know. You know yeah. You know, one of the few texts that people quote about immutability is from Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you read Luke, Jesus grew in knowledge and wisdom and holiness, right? right. So he changed. So what did it mean that the writer of Hebrews says he's the same? It means his character is the same. It doesn't right. mean he never actually changed. At one point, he had no nail prints in his hands. Later, he did. That's a yeah. change. At one point, yeah. he didn't know what crucifixion was personally. Now he knows, you know. So, of course, he yeah. changed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't touch him today. But people could touch him when he was walking yeah. the earth. I mean, yeah. yeah, there's it's that's the the yeah the danger of proof texting for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, if you can figure out how to stamp out proof texting from Christianity, uh, we'd all be in a better place. <laughs> I haven't figured out yeah yet. <laughs> I can do all things with the text taken out of context. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's <clears throat> the the book is it, so you you cover and you talk about Abraham and God's relationship with Israel and the psalmist and lamenting and then you get to Job. And <clears throat> this is the part that I wanted to talk to you about especially because Job is a book that I have read and and studied a good bit but I've never taught through it. I've never translated the book and taught through it and it's a book that I've had, I don't know how many times when I was on staff at church, pastor of discipleship. So I oversaw small groups and curriculum. And when, when different small groups wanted to do different studies, they come to office and, you know, we'd find them material to study regularly had people saying, our group wants to study Job. And I hadn't, it's like, <laughs> Oh, good luck. Have at it. Yeah. Uh, just know that you're going to have different interpretations as many as there are books on it. Um, so tell me, First of all, do what degree of historicity do you see Job? Is it on the spectrum of its history and the events literally happened and his children literally died and Satan, you know, or the angel literally appeared before God to the other spectrum, which says it's all parable. It's all uh, just a story. None of it really happened. There was never even a guy named Job. Um, it's just Hebrews wrestling with life suffering and nothing more. So where in that continuum yeah. do you fit and why? Yeah, so there is a legendary character named Job mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. Um, and so there is some knowledge of a person named Job. But book of Job is a wisdom book. Uh, you know, a wisdom book is not a historical book. Uh, historical books are very different in, in style. And I think the whole question, though, whether Job is a book about events that actually happened or not is a sidetrack, a total modernist sidetrack. We are so concerned with the book of Job having events that actually happened because starting in the 19th century, we became historically oriented in the center. We want to understand what the data of the past were, what really happened, what as opposed to legends. Hmm. And so we are caught in this modernist mind trap. And, you know, the rabbis debated, was Job a parable? Or was Job a real person? And they couldn't agree on it um, in the ancient times. It didn't really matter because the point of the book of Job does not depend on its being historical. In general, I would say, and there may be some exceptions, but in general, trying to ask about historicity 
in Old Testament books, which go back really far when they're written. I mean, they're written two and a half thousand to, to three thousand years ago, right? Mm. Ask about historicity, what really happened is almost always a sidetrack from listening to what the book actually says. Mm. It's an, the, the modernist thing is that we want to get behind the literature to the events. We want to get to the, the world behind the text, as Paul Ricoeur talked about it, rather than the world of the text. And the events behind the text are not the authority for our lives. It's the text in its literary rhetoric, the way it's said, you know, the poetry of the Psalms. You could reduce the, you know, this beautiful Psalms to some propositional statements. That's not what's authoritative. It's the Psalm itself in its mm. poetic beauty. Um, so the book of Job is a wisdom book set up like a platonic dialogue with different characters dialoguing with each other. And in the beginning, you don't know who is right. Is Job right to curse the day of his birth? Are the friends right to say, that's not the right kind of speech. You shouldn't talk that way with God uh, listening. And then Job laments directly to God. Are, who is right? Is Job's wife right? Curse God and die? You know, um, mm -hmm. what's the right? So I look at the book of Job as a test case of this question. What is right speech in a situation of terrible suffering? Mm -hmm. Historically, that may have come out of the exile or in the post-exilic period and people reflecting on it. Certainly the book of Job is very relevant to Jewish people thinking about the Holocaust or as they call it, the Shoah. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's relevant to any situation of suffering. Linking it to one historical period is really not that important to me. I don't even care when it was written. I think it was a Persian age book after the exile, but I'm never going to push that really strong because nothing too much depends on it. The book has its own power, drawing you in to explore which theology is the best theology of suffering. And when Job laments to God and cries out at the end, God says to Job's friends, y'all, plural, y'all, y'all have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job had, because the only one who spoke to God directly in prayer. The book of Job is about the reassertion of lament against positions which say it's inappropriate to protest to God. Did a real Job exist? I don't know. Does it really matter? I don't think so. It's a sidetrack. Do you think, let me just as a quick aside, because the, the other book that frequently gets this similar type of discussion is Jonah. And because of how it's structured as almost yeah. a, a parable or a story, but yeah. yet it's within the prophets and it's linked to a pro So do you think that with Jonah, it's just as, I don't want to say irrelevant, but just as inconsequential, whether it's history okay. or not, or do you think it's a little more? So that's interesting. The, so, so if you look in Kings, Jonah is mentioned just in, one, I think, one or two verses as a prophet. There's not much said about him. Hmm. It's possible that where he's located um, in the history is relevant, that the book of Jonah, which I think is a later parable, I do think so, is meant to affect one's reading of Kings. Hmm. That's possible. So there, that it's like the superscriptions of the Psalms. This is the Psalm that David prayed and so on. So if you took away the superscription, you'd never know the Psalm, anything to do with that because right. it's a generic Psalm. But it's a, it's a, so somebody under the inspiration of the spirit put that heading. Somebody connected Jonah to that history because maybe you got to read that history together with the book of Jonah and wonder right. what's going on in prophecy at that time. Because Jonah is being critiqued as a prophet who has a very right. narrow point of view. And it's very possible some of the prophets had very narrow points of view. Yeah. Uh, the Apostle Paul, speaking of prophecy in the Corinthian church, is relevant to Old Testament. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. Mm -hmm. Prophets don't speak by dictation. They receive right. a message and they put it in whatever language they want to when they think it's appropriate. 
Yeah. And Jonah didn't want to prophesy. Yeah. And all he prophesied was, for the days and Nineveh should be destroyed. Then he ran for cover, hoping that it would be destroyed from lightning. And, and it, there was a repentance. Even the cows repented, put on sackcloth and ashes, which, of course, is humorous, right? a very humorous right. book. And, and, and Jonah gets critiqued for his short-sightedness. And so he quotes uh, Exodus 34, that revelation yeah. of the divine name. To God, I knew you were a God who was merciful and compassionate and forgave sins. Damn it, that's why I didn't want to go to these Assyrians. I wanted <laughs> yeah. them to be destroyed. So yeah. he, he resists God. So that message is relevant whether Jonah exi even existed or not. Maybe mm -hmm. one might read it with the historical with kings and think about how this speaks to that story. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't studied that in any great depth. Yeah. But that's, it's a I, very it's a very funny book. You know, after Jonah laments uh in, in the belly of the fish, uh -huh. even though he was <laughs> everything he says in the belly of the fish is wrong. It's actually totally wrong, irrelevant to the story. And uh -huh. the fish says, I can't take it no more. <laughs> and vomits <laughs> him out. Him I mean, it's actually it's yeah. actually part of the humor, but most people don't get that because they're looking for the historical evidence. Yeah. Yes. Or they treat it as a fable. Uh, yeah. of, of, you know, how we should not be afraid to go where God calls us because he's got bigger yeah. plans than we can uh, possibly imagine. Yeah. And Jonah's treated as the good guy. And I always That's tell people, no, Jonah's the bad guy in the story. Well, I love that. This isn't, we, we, that's a tangent to the discussion, but it, my mind went there because Jonah and Job are two books yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that there's, I think, legitimate. And I say this as an evangelical who believes yeah. in the authority and inspiration of scripture, that that doesn't mean that you read every book as history no. and no. those are two where i would say i i, I lean to them being something not history uh That's something so. more so so let, let, let me let me interject this point for, mm -hmm. for listeners who might be worried about middleton going liberal or something right <laughs> i affirm with paul that if jesus has not been raised from the dead our faith is vain because if god did not act in history to redeem the world then what am I believing in? It's just myth. And I don't believe in a myth. I believe in an actual story of redemption. Now, some of the literature that's part of that story, you got to look at the genre of the literature. Yes. But, but there are certain historical events that are that ground the story. Absolutely. Well, and, and speaking of looking at the literature, when you do look at Job, you uh, there are four characters who have people have had questions about in Job in particular that I wanted to get your thoughts on. You can mm -hmm. be as brief and concise as you want. Two human or two, one human character, which is uh, Elihu or Elihu or however you want to pronounce his name. And cause he's always, he kind of comes on the scene at the end and sort of the young buck that kind of says, listen, old people sit down, I'm going to talk. And, and he doesn't, specifically get rebuked by God. When God shows up and rebukes, Elihu is kind of left out. So some people I think have even said he's just kind of thrown in there as, as a later addition to the text. Uh, so what, do you, what are your thoughts on uh, Elihu? And then on the angel, the, the Satan, I should say, the accuser, most people read that and just think it's Satan and he's running around up in heaven and on earth and this and that. And others say, no, he's, he's not even evil at all. He's just an angel that that's his job as the divine prosecutor or the, the attorney, the, the, the DA. And then the other two characters, uh, Behemoth and Leviathan, people have said everything from dinosaurs, which I don't know of any fire breathing dinosaurs, but whatever. Uh, some people have said, oh, it's just a fanciful way of describing a crocodile and hippopotamus. Uh, but they're known throughout the ancient Near East as well. So those four characters, give us a quick Cliff's Notes. Yeah. How, how does Richard interpret each of those four? Yeah. 
So Elihu is the fourth person who comes in. The three friends have been dialoguing with Job. Job gives a bunch of chapters of his speeches of innocence. And then Elihu comes in and says, you know, you guys, you old footy duddies, I respect you, so I let you finish. But I got something to say. The young people have something to say because God's given me direct revelation. It just doesn't come through the, the hoary ages like what you were talking about. So let me tell you. And he quotes a lot of what they say, but he often misquotes what they say and gives his answers. And his answers are no different in content to what the others have been giving. But he says it's different. In fact, he has this very lengthy introduction saying, I'm going to say something different. And the introduction is very long and doesn't give out any substance whatsoever. If you started a speech like that, I go to sleep before you got to the main <laughs> point, right? And I think that historically, it's a later addition to the book, mm. but it's now part of the biblical canon. It's now part of the book. And it's very interesting that the way the book works is Elihu finishes speaking and it says, and the Lord answered Job just ignored that guy because what he had to say was utterly irrelevant. That's the way it functions in the book as a whole. Hmm. This is one more point of view that tries to be different and doesn't have anything worthwhile to say. Let's move on and get to answer Job because he's really the one who's been speaking to God. Nobody else has been speaking to God. That's why I view Elihu. Okay. Maybe a later literary edition, but it has an important function in the book to keep delaying you getting to the point where you say, come on, God, answer, answer, answer. Oh, finally, God's going to answer. Which is the kind of thing that Job would be yearning for listening to Elihu. Oh, my goodness. More people criticizing me. Uh, let me hear what God has to say. Right. Okay. Um, let me do Behemoth and Leviathan first. Okay. Um, Leviathan is a, is a creature that is known from the ancient Near East. The, the Ugaritic myths have this litan or lotan, depending on how you, you vocalize it. That's the same root, um, word described in the same way as, as elsewhere in the Bible, a seven-headed monster and so on. I don't think there's fire breathing. That's unique to Job, this part. You know, by the way, um, Tolkien describes Smaug in The Hobbit taking his cue from Leviathan. Oh, I never picked up on that. It's when Smaug describes himself to, to Bilbo, uh -huh. he's using some of the same imagery from the Leviathan story. That's another oh, whole thing. Now I have to, to go back into. and reread it. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, uh, and Behemoth is just the, the, the word for um, cattle or livestock. The plural word is a singular word in Hebrew, Behemoth. So Behemoth is the plural. It's sometimes used to mean animals in the Bible, but it, in here it means mega animal, biggest mm. possible land animal that it is. Well, it's in the water as well. Um, it, you know, it's, it's in the modern period that someone for the first time, I think it's an early modern period, suggested this was a hippopotamus mm. and Leviathan was a crocodile. But it was never thought to be that before. And of course, it's irrelevant to think about dinosaurs because nobody in the text knew about dinosaurs. And you cannot attribute meaning to a text that was not in the mind of the author in some way or another. Mm. That's just bad biblical exegesis. So these are mythic creatures. The point about it is these mythic creatures are viewed as evil in the world, in the ancient world. And God is saying, I created behemoth as the first of my mighty works. An almost identical phrase is said of wisdom says, I was created as the first of God's mighty works in Proverbs 8. This is a good creature. It is a dangerous creature. You get too close and it'll kill you. And Leviathan, we're specifically told, nobody can tame him. Uh, even the gods are afraid of him. This is mythological language, right? So don't try and hook him with a hook or anything. He will not speak soft words to you. He breathes fire. He's as dangerous as Yahweh is, basically. You know, Sinai, don't come too close. Well, there's a whole debate you had with Carmen. No, no you didn't have it. Uh, the Bible project had with Carmen about should they have come too close or not. But I think in... Uh -huh. 
this is a dangerous monster. God is saying, don't get too close to Leviathan. He is not evil. So what God is doing is reframing dangerous monsters and saying they're good creatures, but they're not for humans to play with. Now, why does God do that? The whole point that God does that is say, Job, don't you realize you are just like these monsters? And your friends have been afraid of you. And they're trying to tame you. And they can't tame you. I like good monsters. God is basically Steve Irwin saying, beautiful creature. Beautiful <laughs> creature. Just depending on young. But don't come too close, man. I love these creatures. I protect them. So, Job, I affirm your wild, untamable language. Don't think I'm afraid of that. It doesn't bother me. It bothers your friends. It doesn't bother me. So, God is encouraging Job's lament by these monsters. That's what I and a number of other scholars read these creatures. That's really, I, that's a really, uh, just before you get into the, the yeah. Satan accuser, that's a, for, for those listening that are hearing that for the first time, uh, to unpack the ideas that just as God is not afraid or doesn't even flinch at the scariest, mightiest, most chaotically unpredictable things in the ancient mind, Leviathan, Behemoth, he can certainly handle the questions that Job is throwing at him. Right. They're doing nothing to to endanger him in any way. Is that what? Right. That's right, okay. yeah. And, and there are two speeches of God. The first speech corrects Job's theology, and that renders Job silent. And that's why there's a second speech. God's all right. Okay, you know, that you're, I'm a professor. Sometimes I'll challenge a student, and it shuts them up. And I want to actually have them re respond to me. So I've got to put, draw them out. So God says, all right, let me give you two examples of monsters that I'm not afraid of. Let you know, I'm not afraid of your questions. Come on, yeah. speak up like them, you know? And yeah. the, the big, the biggest description of both Behemoth and Leviathan is that they have large mouths. Mm. And, and so that's mm -hmm. the analogy he's given with Job. I don't care about big mouth people. It's fine. Talk, man. <laughs> talk. You know. <laughs> yeah. That's fat. Okay. That's that's okay. really fascinating. And people watching this, go back and read the speeches at the end of Job in light of what Richard's saying, and see how it lands with you, and, and read it that way. Because I guarantee, for most people. And, and being somebody who reviews study Bibles, I don't know of many study Bibles that even unpack all of these things. Uh, so this is something that I, reader, listeners, viewers, watchers, pay attention to these type of insights in how you're reading this ancient text because it's fascinating yeah. stuff. And JM, I'm gonna, I want to follow up on a, some, a suggestion you made outside of this video that mm -hmm. maybe you and I work together to produce these two chapters, e either a standalone study guide to, to Job or a little book or a video series or something, because we need an introduction at a, a yes. lay level to the book of Job that uses these insights. I would do, I'm, I'm on board already. You just tell yeah, me what to do. We're going to work it out. We're going to work it out. <laughs> yes. Right. All right. It really is what I asked, because I, I did not know, I mean, other than like the old, uh, you know, old Tyndall commentary or something, I, I just don't have resources. I don't know of resources that can help lay. I want somebody needs to do for Job what Carmen has done for Exodus and yes, Sinai. Yeah. So I, I think there's fruitful there. Okay, so tell us okay. the angel, Satan, so, yeah, the accuser. So, so ha Satan means the accuser. The majority of times the word Satan is used in the in the Old Testament. It's used for a human being who's an a, opponent in some way that opposes a human being, often by accusing them or slandering them. Not only in that way. You have to read. Um, the the Satan, and it's a title, not a name. It, Satan becomes a name much later in New Testament times. Mm -hmm. But you have to read this as a title. And the question is, what is it a title of? And you look literarily within the book itself to see how is he actually portrayed. And then you ask, what was the beliefs of the time about the angelic beings around God? 
but gives you some little bit of uh, um, control beliefs about that. And when you think about it, the Satan is not the devil. The way that we think of the devil, that's a later idea. It doesn't really crystallize till maybe the second century BCE, mm -hmm. uh, the way we think of it as the head of the angels. And by the way, there is nowhere in the Bible that ever speaks of a primordial fall of Satan. That is a later idea. It actually comes out of the Enoch literature and, and enters the Christian literature through Milton. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really unusual. It does not come from the Bible itself. So what you have here is a literary figure who opposes God. You can say with God's this, you know, um, attorney who's going to be, try and challenge, challenge God and, and try and find fault, all that kind of stuff. You can do that. There are analogies in the ancient world of the Persian Empire. That's all interesting. I'm not going to go there right now. Just going to say this is someone who challenges God and says that, you know, you do this to Job, but he will curse you. And he, the figure of the Satan does not show up in the conclusion to Job because it's a figure to get the story started, but it's not important to the story. Whether the author of Job believed there was actually a, an, an angel that was the opposing angel of God or not doesn't even matter for the story. He may have thought that, he may not. The story has its own integral liter literary function. Mm -hmm. And you read the story for what it actually says. You read the world of the text and don't speculate too much about the world behind the text in the author's mind or in the, the culture. That's interesting, but don't let it dominate the text. That's the way I think of it. You know, there are some scholars that if you when when you say don't speculate too much about the world behind the text, you just destroyed their entire careers. I know because I know. They, that's all they do is seem to speculate. And, and, about. and, and some are skeptical and some are <laughs> trusting. They're yeah. both in the same camp. They both mm -hmm. think that the history behind the text is more important than the text, which is not. Yeah. It contributes to it, but we don't know a whole lot about the history behind the text, to be yeah. honest. Well, it's refreshing to hear that, hear somebody admitting that and, and being so candid and frank. I think you're absolutely right. So if you are interested watching this in what Richard is talking about, if you perked up when he said that the Bible never describes the fall of Satan, a primordial fall of Satan, that may be new to a lot of people. Check the video. I'm going to put a link in the description below. We have our own esteemed Professor Daredevil of Superhero Seminary here who talks about the origin of Lucifer and where that concept of the devil came from and how Milton, rather than scripture, is who is largely responsible for it. So check that out for a, a more lighthearted approach or introduction to that topic. Real quick, let me ask you before we move on. So I've been doing a series here on Disciple Dojo on our YouTube channel on ancient Near East backgrounds in the Bible. And I did one recently about, you know, are there dragons in the Bible? And we talked about Leviathan and the different uh, iterations of that chaos monster myth. And in the in the Ugaritic epic, uh, Baal is the one, Baal kills Leviathan. But then when the Anat comes on, she boasts about killing Leviathan. I just I've read a couple of different theories, but I'm not an ancient Near East specialist. So, uh, what are, what are your thoughts on what's happening there? Did she do it? Is she boasting, bragging for something that Baal yeah. actually did because she's so wild and unpredictable? Yeah. Or are they like so joined together in the minds of the people that what one does, the other does? Uh, yeah. How do you approach that? I'll preface this by saying I am not an expert on Ugaritic literature either. That's mm -hmm. not my area. But one thing I do know is the Baal cycle. Notice mm -hmm. the term cycle. It's not a mm -hmm. unified story. 
It's a collection of different stories. So it could be that there were different myths and legends around about Baal's conquest of Leviathan or death, the god Moat, and then Anna's conquest of Leviathan. So there's these different um, myths around, and they got put together in the cycle of stories. But these are different tablets, you know, and was it one story? I don't think it was from what I can understand. So that's what I think is going on. Okay. That's a, yeah, that's a good insight. And I, I'm trying to work through presenting those concepts to a popular audience and I'm doing it as a secondary and not as an Ugaritic scholar yeah. as well. So that's the challenge that we it's, have. It's important to understand that ancient Near Eastern mythology is full of contradictions. Mm. It's a hodgepodge of all kinds of different beliefs because there is no authoritative text like the Bible. People in different right. places, the different versions of the myths and the legends. And so, you know, which deity is doing what? As a generation passes and another deity rises, this deity takes the place of that deity in a myth and so forth. Even in Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation story, you know, Marduk is the chief god of Babylon who kills Tiamat. But in the Assyrian recension, Ashur, the god of Assyria, is the one who kills Tiamat. So right, right. You know, they just keep shifting this thing around, man. Yeah, I, I get it. And it's I, I think of it because I am, you know, like a pop culture and comic book superhero nerd. And I just think of, well... In the Marvel comics, Spider-Man was this, but in the Marvel movies, he was this, and they just both and, exist. And, and, and in which and in which universe, right? Which multiverse was yeah, he in? Yeah. <laughs> was he like, you know, yeah, yeah. That that may be. I may have to do a video telling people think of it that way. But okay, so we've only got. I want to keep you a few more minutes. Uh, the last question that I had, page one ninety seven, you give an example of God testing Abraham, and it wasn't uh, basically in order to get the response that Abraham ended up giving, but rather to test him in the way, I think you say a teacher would test a student and say, now I know you're a C student, but that doesn't mean the teacher wants the student to be a C student. They, they maybe tested them hoping that they would be, or wanting them to be an A student. So two part question is one, can you kind of unpack that example a little bit in God's response to Abraham? And two, a viewer, uh, a follower on Facebook actually included this question was if the ancient Near East gods were so capricious and arbitrary and demanding of sacrifices, including even living relatives, firstborn children, all that stuff. When God asked this of Abraham, would Abraham may have, would it may have been a little less shocking to Abraham than it is to us today, even though it still would have been shocking regardless. Uh, Or do you think that's inconsequential that no matter how you slice it, it was a crazy, ridiculous request to begin with on God's part. Well, and that's how we're supposed mm-hmm. to read it. I think that viewer has some significant insight there, which is going to help me clarify um, what the test is about. Mm-hmm. So Abraham is a member of Mesopotamian society coming from Ur of the Chaldees. Now, Ur of the Chaldees is an anachronism um, because Ur is an ancient Sumerian city and the Chaldees are a later ethnic group that rules Babylon in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So, it, you know, it's... It, whatever, it's a later period is putting this together. He comes from that area and his family journeys to Haran in um, Syria, northern Syria, and then he comes down into into, um, Canaan. Now, this God who has called him to come, does he know much about this God? No, he's learning. God wants to shape Abraham and his descendants to be a unique people, to bear his name, to use Carmen's idea, right? Mm -hmm. To to manifest his mission in the world to bring blessing to the nations. But he's going to have to represent this God accurately. He needs to come to know this God. And the story of Abraham, you can read it in terms of a, a man coming to understand something more about this deity 
who he doesn't know much about. He comes from a pagan culture. He knows about pagan deities, mm-hmm. and lots of different Mesopotamian deities and lots of Canaanite deities and so forth. So when God says, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him, he could think, that's just what kid, that's what deities do. They want to, you to prove your commitment. So in one sense, it's not that shocking. In another sense, it is a son. So it would, it would be a serious sacrifice. I'm giving up something important, right, to me. So I th- the way I read it is the test is not whether, you know, at the end, um, the Abraham says, stop. Now I know you fear God because you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. So that Abraham fears God is like this, the, 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 um, the student getting a C on the exam. That's the outcome. But God didn't want him just to fear God. Uh, somebody who feared a pagan God would sacrifice their child. But I think that what God is doing is testing two things. And the test is not just to see if this is the case. It's to cause it to be the case. So you study for a test, you become better knowledgeable about the material, right? Mm-hmm. And when the question comes, you bring together the knowledge you have, and you can actually say more than you thought you knew, because the test brings out something in you. And that's what testing is like in the Bible. It brings out something. So the test is, prim- first of all, can you discern that I am not just like the gods of the pagans. I'm a God who is merciful. I don't require child sacrifice. And if Abraham would have said, Lord, you don't want me to kill my child. Really, do you? That's not the kind of God you are. God would have said, A plus, brother. You just mm. passed with flying colors. But the other part of the test is, take your son Isaac. Because Abraham has shown in the previous narrative, if you read carefully, that he really cares about Ishmael but has no feelings for Isaac whatsoever. Mm. Sarah cares about Isaac. Abraham cares about Ishmael. The very reason Sarah sent Hagar and Ishmael away, she was afraid that Ishmael would actually get the inheritance, not Isaac, because Abraham basically favors Ishmael. A number of places in the text suggest that. So take your son, your only son, Isaac. You love him, don't you? Mm. And go kill him. Hmm. Would that prod Abraham to say, hey, God, you can't want me to kill my son. And that would start to develop a bond between him and Isaac. So it would actually bring out some love and create some love that had been missing before because he was not bonded with his son the way the narrative shows it. So primarily he's being tested for discernment of the character of God. Secondarily, he's being tested for his love for his son. There is nothing in the Bible that suggests to me that dedication to God should be in conflict with love for your children. Mm-hmm. except the way this story is traditionally read. And that's highly problematic. And of course, the outcome of the story is that he does fear God. That's better than saying, God, screw you. I'm not going to do what you want. That's mm-hmm. disobedience. So he gets a C or he barely passes. He gets graded on a curve or something you could say, because God doesn't give up on him. God continues with him. But Isaac does not return down the mountain. We're told that the two of them walked together at the mountain, but we're told that Abraham returned to his servants and he went to Beersheba. And at the end of the story, and this is in the book, Um, Sarah is living in Haran, Abram is living in Beersheba, so is Hagar, Mm -hmm. Isaac is living in Beher Laharoi, they're not in the same place, it's a broken family, Mm -hmm. this family is not the way it's supposed to be, is that what God actually wants, and not only is Isaac not living with his father after that, the, the son, Jacob, makes a covenant with Laban, his uncle, in the name of the God of his father, Abraham, 
and the name of the God of his father, Isaac. And what is the name of, his, of Isaac's God? The fear of Isaac. Because that's what Jacob learned from his father about God. You run scared of this deity because he tries to kill you. Mm. And of course, he's also alienated from his father because his father didn't try and protect him. Yeah. So that's what I think is going on in this story. Mm -hmm. There's a tradition, rabbinical tradition, that that Sarah, hearing that what had happened is when she died, right? Yes. Is that the, the next time Sarah is mentioned in the narrative is her death. Right. So that so that what the rabbinics they love to fill in the gaps. They say what happened to Isaac in the three years between Moriah and when he meets um, his wife. Because Abraham sends a servant to find the wife. Abraham never meets Isaac again. In that three years, something he was taken to the Garden of Eden to heal of his wounds. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that, that's do. one of the rabbinic traditions. And then the other one is because Sarah appears, the next thing she appears, she dies. That's because she heard what Abraham tried to do to Isaac. And she right. died. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, they, they're definitely, when you're reading the <laughs> rabbinic literature, you have to be on notice that there's a lot of filling in the gaps. Yeah. A lot of and, stuff. And that, they do it different rabbis fill in the gaps different ways. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's yeah. why I'm always wary when, when people quote the, the ancient rabbis as authoritative, because yeah. I'm always like, well, they're, they're a good source of how people have approached the text, but like, you know, yeah. they do fill it in different ways. And yeah. a lot of it becomes speculation, but the idea that this event broke or shattered the family is one that does not get a lot of mention outside of the commentaries. And for some and, people and, reading it, they've yeah. probably never heard that before hearing not this interview. Ma not many commentaries mention it either, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It's quite so, rare. Yeah. So you, let me, let me give a quick, what jumped in my mind when you were speaking was a possible, cause I always like to think of possible pushbacks or possible exceptions. And when you talk about, you said, God, love for God never is asked to be exercised in a way that conflicts with love for family. Not intrinsically, not intrinsically. Yes. There may be times when it does conflict, yes. Right. So then how how would you incorporate when Jesus says to be my disciple, hate you your mother to hate and father? Your brother, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how do yeah. you mix those? How do you make those two texts work together? Right. And not I, I, yeah. So I think that what it's saying is you, you're not supposed to. So, you know, uh, yeah. You're not, you're not supposed to elevate commitment to your family over dedication to God. Mm -hmm. um, that's pretty clear in the Bible. Commitment to nothing should ever be elevated above commitment to God. But that doesn't mean that God says you should go and kill your family as in a holy jihad to prove that you're dedicated to me. That is not something the Bible actually endorses. Right, right. And so, so everybody who interprets um, the, the Genesis 22 text in the traditional way says it's a one-off. Mm -hmm. But then that asks, why is it a one-off? It's only a one-off if Abraham needed to cut his ties with Isaac because he was too attached to him and it was getting in the way of his allegiance to God. But it wasn't. He had no attachment to Isaac whatsoever. Hmm. So, so on all kind of exegetical bases, reading in context, the traditional reading doesn't actually make sense. And you would say, to clarify, when God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love— that that is a uh, 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 ironic, or that's like God being like, he's not literally Abraham it's, it's doesn't. An, it's an encouragement. Just... It's an encouragement. Many people have pointed out that the grammatical structure of the Hebrew is different. Take your every time you have an object of a verb in Hebrew, you have a direct object marker, et um, in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. You know, um, take your son. It's got a direct object marker. Your only one direct object marker. 
whom you love is a relative phrase. It doesn't have the direct object marker. Then Isaac with the direct object marker. So that phrase stands out even grammatically. And people have speculated, why is it different that way? Mm. And I think it's, it's a rhetorical exhortation. So if I was going to have a, a movie or a drama, I would have God saying, Abraham, Abraham, you know, yes, Lord, here I am. Take your son, please. You're only one. You love him, right? And go and sacrifice him on the mountain. And Abraham would reflect on, do I really love him? Mm-hmm. Nah, I don't care that much. Yeah, I'll go do that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I might work it out that way. You, you'd experiment with different ways, right, but I'll right. put it as, a, as an encouragement. You love him, don't you? Yeah. There are so many times in the Bible, and this is what I never appreciated until I learned Hebrew, was there are so many stories in the Bible like this, that if you read it with one tone or read it with another tone, it's almost a different story. Yes. And I think most English readers don't fully appreciate that uh, because this will lead into a a question and some of the audience, the viewers had suggested English translations have to make choices and translate things. And they also have to listen to tradition and they have to listen to the market because as the TNIV taught us, bad publicity can kill a good translation. So in, when it comes to Bible translations and Disciple Dojo, one of the things our channel is known for is reviewing uh, translations and study Bibles in particular. What are some translations that you have appreciate I, with the caveat that no translation is perfect yeah, and, and yeah. nothing substitutes for original language uh, study? What are some translations that you would recommend to viewers that you've found beneficial for one reason or another? Yeah. In my history of Bible study from a young adult all the way through. My, my Bibles were first an NASB, then an NIV when it first came out of the full Bible, and now the NRSV. That's the ones I basically use. However, no translation is perfect. And I tell my students, who most do not have original languages when they're doing exegesis, I say, in any passage you're studying, you must look at le- in at least three very different translations. And if you see a a difference in translation, don't pick the one you like. That is total subjectivism. (laughs) Go do some research in commentaries and ask, why do they translate it differently? What's going on there? So I will use always multiple translations. And if I'm reading scripture in church, I may pick one that I think is closest and then change some of the phrasing to fit more what I think the Hebrew or the Greek is getting at. Mm-hmm. I will do that myself because there is no perfect one. So I'd say use the, NA, the, the NIV if you want. Um, it, it, there's all different versions of it. Now it is the, the newest version, right? Um, use the, the NRSV. And there's a new NRSV, NRSV right. UA, or UE, updated edition. Yeah. Updated edition. Um, so I like the NRSV, but I don't like it all. I actually prefer the NIV to the NRSV on Genesis 1.1 mm. because it's often said, Genesis 1-1 really says, when God began to create, then it actually is totally ambiguous in Hebrew. It's contradictory in its grammatical structure. It includes both versions. You know, so it, uh, when God began to create, yeah, what did he do? Well, the, the earth was this way and so forth, and God said. Or is it when God, in, when God began, he created? Now, that doesn't make any sense grammatically. That's what it actually says in Hebrew. When God began, he created. Mm. Yeah, that's a verse I've, I've had people ask me about it. And I've, you know, I've said there's, it's too ambiguous to take so, a so firm stance so I pick on. It, I just pick it. I pick the traditional one because it doesn't contradict the point of the whole text. 
Right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a summary of what is to come. So mm. always compare translations and, right. and look at study Bibles and look at commentaries if you need to clarify things. But I try to teach my students a method that they can read the text without relying too much on secondary literature. Mm-hmm. Because for most of their lives as pastors, they're not going to have time to study every text they're preaching on in depth. So you've got to start to get a basic sense of an intuition of how do you interpret the Bible intelligently and what do you need to look up and research and what you don't need to look up. Mm-hmm. So, so I say um, use any modern translation, but never stick to just one. Compare it with especially different ones. Now, one of the translations that I recommend, not because it's a good translation, is the NET. Mm-hmm. It's a very, it's quite a loose um, dynamic equivalence translation, but the footnotes are Notes. worth the price of the Bible. They're yeah. phenomenal. I've only yeah. found one or two places that I think they're wrong. In most mm-hmm. places, they're they're really good. Yeah. Um, I'll just mention one thing about the NRSV. It's generally a good Bible. I, I use it all, as my basic one, mm-hmm. but I found places where it, one place in Isaiah 61, it missed a phrase entirely from Hebrews. wasn't there. Mm. Every other Bible had it. The updated edition has it. Now, I don't know if I'm the cause, but I reported to the committee that that yeah. phrase was missing about two years ago. And they said, we'll make sure to put it back in. Nice. Um, maybe other people reported it too. I don't know. But <laughs> I gave them two corrections, two things that were missing from the Bible. That was one of them. Yeah, yeah. that's great. <laughs> um, the Bible translations are a subject that is interesting to a lot of people. I mean, just looking at YouTube and I... I kind of keep an eye on what other people do on YouTube in terms of channels that review Bibles. And most of most of the Bible reviews that I've seen focus on the binding and the paper and the typeface really? and all this yeah. stuff. But, um, but people have really, my, my most viewed videos, I, I'll have like, you know, I had Carmen on. When I post this, I'll have you on like renowned scholars. My most viewed videos will still be uh, recommended study Bibles or sure. a review of this study Bible because people... There's a hunger to know, but there's also a recognition that the field is so vast. And when you throw in original languages, it just becomes like who who can keep up with all these things. No, I know that Carmen likes the the Bible background study Bible, which Mm -hmm. comes in NIV and NRSV. And I do use that and I'm recommending to my students. I also recommend the New Interpreter Study Bible. I know you don't like Tribble's article on biblical authority. That, that's fine. <laughs> Putting that's it fine. kindly. Uh, yes, that's fine. But I find that quite a helpful Bible because it's more theological than trying to be what the world behind the text. So mm. if you want to get some more the theological literary stuff, I find mm. that to be a, a, a wonderful Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you looked at the Biblical Theology Study Bible at all? Yeah, I find okay. it too narrow-minded, to be honest. Oh, Okay. That's interesting. I, I thought I would find it more narrow than I ended up well, finding it. Anyway. Maybe, maybe so I've been out of the evangelical subculture too long. It's a, it, it's a <laughs> shock to my system, some of the stuff I saw in there. That's true. I'm, I'm firmly <laughs> within it. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm in orthodoxy, Nicene creedal orthodoxy, but not the evangelical subculture. Right. I uh, took myself out of that in my late 20s. Mm. I've never gone back. I know people that are do a lot of people doing that now uh, yeah. because probably for similar reasons, maybe. I'll save, well, this one's the one you've done the most work on. You could probably talk for hours, but sum it up as concisely as you can for <laughs> a viewer that wants to know, what is the image of God? What does that mean? Oof. How would you say it? <laughs> you could almost write a book on this, I, I imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, so I did an academic book on it, right? My dissertation years ago. Yeah. I'm writing a popular version of it now. I'm probably for Brazos Press. 
Okay. Um, called God's Prism, image of God in the biblical story. Oh, yeah. So my, my summary would be this. God creates the world as a sacred place, a holy temple that he wants to indwell with all creatures. He, want, he who is enthroned in heaven wants to also fill the earth with his presence. That's the direction of the biblical story. But it doesn't happen automatically. When the temple and tabernacle were built, the glory of the Lord came down and filled them. But when God finished cre creating, he did not fill the cosmos with his presence. Instead, he made a human being out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life, and the human became alive. Human beings are the image of God in the temple of the Lord. We are the icon. Every ancient temple had an image that manifested the presence of the deity to the world. Our purpose in living righteously within the fullness of ordinary everyday life is to manifest the presence of God. That's what it means to be Imago Dei. That is why Jesus is the prime Imago Dei, because he did it perfectly. Mm -hmm. He was the bond between heaven and earth in a way that we all failed at. And we are now the church, the body of Christ, the temple of the living God, the dwelling place of the spirit, renewed in God's image. And in the last day, when creation is all filled with the glory of, of God, and, he, and the throne of God moves from heaven to earth, as it does in chapter 21 of Revelation, and the dwelling of God is now among people, then humans will be God's image with no sin, manifesting the presence of God to the created order the way we're meant to be. That's my quick, quick summary of the image in the biblical story. Yeah, so people, some people listening are just like, wait, 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 hold on, let me unpack that. I'm that's, why, about... that's why I'm doing a book on it, right? And by yeah. the way, um, there's going to be, coming out in about September, there'll be a seminary now video series on biblical eschatology I've done, which traces that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It puts so, the image folks, of God in that context. Yeah, if you if pe viewers aren't aware, Seminary Now is a series of short academic uh, scholarly videos, but they're geared towards popular audiences. Yeah. Uh, and to understand these concepts, theological concepts, they're really good. And yeah, I definitely recommend it. it's a subscription-based uh, yeah. kind of streaming theological content. That's so cool. I'm glad the, you're doing eschatology. In, in my, my case, it would be 11 videos between 10 and 15 minutes each that take you from creation to eschaton and address mm -hmm. the question of what's, what's God's purpose for the world and what's the human role in that purpose. Mm -hmm. That's great. So you would, would you say, is it fair to say you would say, image of God is is not an aspect or a criteria or something that we possess, but it's rather the identity that we have, or would you say it somehow? It, it's, it's both a gift and a calling. So as a gift, it's our identity. You receive it from God. Everyone, no matter what kind of what gender, race, class, social status, or even mental capacity or physical capacity. You still have that gift of identity from God. And to the extent that you can have some kind of agency, and everyone has some minimal agency, to that extent, you manifest that presence. That's the calling by the way you live. And those who have greater gifts, well, it's a Spider-Man principle, right? More responsibility, you know, <laughs> it's got more power. So God's going to hold us accountable for how we image him in the world by what we do. But it's first our identity. And then it's our mission Beautiful. or vocation. Yeah. And is the idea you chose the title or the concept subtitle, the, the prism, the idea being God's, to God's manifest. Prism, the manifest, scatter oh. the light of God in multiple different ways. None of us are going to image God exactly the same. Mm -hmm. you know? and nobody is going to ever duplicate Disciple Dojo. Hallelujah. You're doing it in <laughs> a unique Lord, way, Lord. brother. You're doing it in a unique way. That, and nobody, will, and nobody should, should imitate Middleton. They're going to process it and figure out what they believe and put it in their words, you know, and adapt it. Yeah. And that's fine. Uh, 
That's great. Well, I, I, that's wonderful. I can't wait to read that when it comes out. Uh, the popular level book definitely needed because that's a concept that's I've had so many people suggest. What, well, this is the image of God. And this is the image of God. And yeah. Um, okay. Let me run through a few more of these. So as you mentioned eschatology, here's a great question from a friend who is eschatologically minded on Facebook. He wants to know why does eschatology matter in everyday life? Because so many times these discussions seem to be about amillennial, premillennial, mid-trib, post-trib, uh, you know, which world leader is which antichrist and da, da, da. And people just say the classic phrase that I hate, I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end, which to me is just, it makes my skin crawl because I'm like, no, there's a reason to understand this stuff without picking yeah. one particular view and hammering it home. But Richard, how would you, in your own life and to your students, when you say, no, it matters what you believe about the end. Yeah. Why? And how so does it inform yeah. us? It, it matters what you believe about the end, but the question of, of millennialism and the Antichrist, those are all pseudo questions. They're absolutely irrelevant to real eschatology. Mm. Eschatology is about <clears throat> the direction of history, the telos, the goal to which God is bringing creation. That's what eschatology is. It's not some crazy ad hoc thing that you, you come up with on you know, crystal ball gazing and what's going to happen in the end. It's what's God's purpose for the world. And God's purpose is to bring the world to its fruition, to overcome sin and death and to bring about a new creation so that God's intent from the beginning could be realized. And it happens through the atonement, the cross of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, when he returns to bring fulfillment to that. So the, the fundamental question of eschatology is this. Are we going to leave the world or is God going to come to the world? Hmm. That's the fundamental question. Hmm. Are we? It's a, it's a theology of ascent or descent. And in the Bible, it's consistently descent. God comes to meet us in our historical existence to dwell with us. That's what the incarnation is about. And the second coming is that way again. And God will renew creation and renew us as human beings. And it will not be like we could imagine because eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has prepared. But you know, he's given us the spirit to give us glimmerings of this. Eschatology matters not in the particular doctrines. What do you believe in your heart of hearts about the future? What do you actually expect God is going to be doing with this world that affects how you live now. Mm -hmm. If you believe in your heart of hearts that God does not care about this world, he's going to trash it and take us away to an immaterial realm, you will not care about this world and you will trash it too. Usually, if this is really what you believe, I'm not talking about doctrines, but you actually believe in your heart. But if you believe this is the God who so loved the world that he gave his only son to redeem it and cosmos he loved that cosmos. That's not just the human race. Can canonically speaking, I think we're warranted to say God loves the creation and wants to redeem this world. Mm -hmm. One of my professors said, you know, churches like to say God doesn't make junk. That means you're an important person in God's purposes. He said, but you got to also say God doesn't junk what he makes. Mm -hmm. yeah. God's going to redeem what he makes. God's going to restore this world to what it was meant to be without sin. If mm -hmm. I believe that in my heart of hearts, I will begin to live that out now. Mm. So as I've been saying of late, and it's in my book on eschatology, ethics is lived eschatology. Mm -hmm. How I live now is a foretaste of what I anticipate in the future. That's There's, what I think matters. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I that the, what you're saying is uh, so crucial for people to understand because I see ways that people don't even realize 
they are living based on their eschatology. You mentioned environmental care, and uh, I, I recently read Sandy Richter's book on Stewards of Eden, which is wonderful, and that full of examples of people who they don't even think about their stance on how they vote, how they choose political alliances, or or just everyday stuff, even what cars they drive or what kind of food they eat. You know, it's based on, like you're saying, what do we fundamentally believe about the world and what God's doing and how God looks at the world? Um, and, and for me, my interest in eschatology came dovetailed with my interest in ethics, socio-geopolitical ethics, and because I was seeing how people's eschatology was determining their foreign policy right. politically. And not just with like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but the Middle East in general or global wars and uh, one world government fears and all of these things that had just echoes of dispensational Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth that people still unconsciously live with and reflectively uh, like, like I give you an example in, in method, I'm United Methodist, which we're in the middle of sorting our separate ways. And the global Methodist church has uh, arisen, which is the, you know, the, the evangelicals in Methodism centered in Africa. And there are evangelical Methodists in America. They're one of their biggest complaints was it uses the word global. And that reminded them of one world government and that that can't be you know, we got to change this name that can't, you know, and I was just thinking, how do you read the Bible and not come away with a global God? Yeah, right, right, it doesn't right. make sense to me. But but yeah. then I remembered, well, it's because, you know, 50 years of eschatological teaching has been telling you that the Antichrist needs one world government so he can put the credit card, the, the mark of the beast on your forehead and make you buy and sell and this and that. And I'm so glad that your course is coming out on eschatology. So I got, I got to tell you a, a, an anecdote about how Lindsay in, in Jamaica, he came to my church to preach. No kidding. So the Christian Businessman Association invited him. They were into eschatology. They invited him to preach. And he preached Sunday morning on Gog and Magog from Ezekiel. And I remember yeah. sitting there. I'm a seminary student. I had no idea what he was talking about. The most convoluted foolishness I'd ever heard. And then I was supposed to come and have a setup in the evening for uh, another lecture he's supposed to give. And humorously, I say this, but maybe it's not humorous. I got two flat tires on the way to church that day. Praise the Lord. He was trying to prevent me from coming so I wouldn't waste my time anymore. Because <laughs> then you would have had to have just stood up and been like, hold on, time out. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that yeah, eschatology is is endlessly fascinating for so many different reasons, but usually it's not the reasons that it should be fascinating, right. which is what you're talking about, uh, God's big picture, big plan. Um, so then thinking of the future, the last question, and somebody submitted this one, who is um, uh, into theological and biblical studies. And they wanted to know, how do you see, with all the advances, like you talk about, I mean, when I started teaching our hermeneutics course, Bible for the Rest of Us, which is here at Disciple Dojo, our free curriculum, I would show people my parallel Bible. I, like I'd have my, it had four columns in each. Just in the span of me creating this course, and now that is obsolete because of you version. And I just hold up my phone and say, you have every Bible translation you could ever want for free at the tip of your fingers. So that's one example of how technology is making biblical studies, pushing it in new directions. The other one is um, 
Dan Wallace and the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, how they're going around and digitizing uh, high quality photographing, scanning, x-ray, everything, every manuscript that they can find to forever preserve these digital copies so that any scholar in anywhere with a library internet access can actually say, is that an uh, Yoda or is that a fleck of papyrus or, you know, so those are two ways. And then the last one is the linguistic programs like Accordance and Lagos being able to, I mean, my lexicon on the shelf has sat on the shelf now for about five or six years unused because I have it digitally on my laptop. So how do you see the digital world and the technological revolution? Do you see it affecting biblical studies in any significant way? Do you see any drawbacks to it? Do you see any benefits to it? How, how do you sit as a scholar with the advances in technological biblical studies? That is a very difficult question for me to answer, partially because of my age. I'm going to be retiring in five years or so. So I'm, I'm that earlier generation. I got into the digital, but I got into it late in life. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's people like you and Carmen and others who are going to have to answer that question properly. So I can't fully answer it. Mm -hmm. I can say this, the, the digitizing of stuff and being able to access it in digital form makes it very easy to research something and check out what you're doing to make sure you're not making an error. Uh, it takes so long to check, uh, make sure I'm not making an error on some detail in, in the old days compared to mm -hmm. now. The drawback of it is, is it prevents, I find, deep indwelling of the text. Yeah. It is, I find that more, more and more people are not using their Bibles in a serious way to study them. They'll just look it up if they want to check something. But, um, you know, the studies have been done about how the human mind processes digital versus uh, um, something on paper. And we've also found out that apart from the forehead is the place where this is this place of David and Goliath story. Right? The forehead has the most nerve endings in the body on the surface of, of your um, body anywhere. That's why you could knock Goliath out pretty quickly and then cut his head off with a sword. But you know what, what has the second most number of nerve endings hmm. is the index finger of the hand you write with. Hmm. And so if you use a pen or pencil and make notes, it's stimulating your brain in a way that typing on a computer does not, or just reading on a computer. So I always write when I am studying, then I learn much better. Mm -hmm. But I find that hard to do when I'm write, re reading digital. Mm -hmm. Because I would like, to, I love to put my notes on the physical text that I'm studying. If it could be in a Bible, but I could print out the text with maybe the original language and, and the translation, and then mm -hmm. I'm making notes along the way. And then I'll retype that to have my notes integrated. But the actual writing, causes me to get deeper than just reading passively. Mm -hmm. And so I think this may be a drawback of digital. I, I agree with you. I think that there's something to, I, I, I am on, so I'm that generation that has a foot in each. I, I grew up analog, but then college was digital. So w my generation born between, I think it's 75 and 81 is this weird little window where we're basically bilingual in terms of technology. And I I completely agree with you that there's something to writing down notes and making I can visualize on the page a text and when I think about a passage in scripture it is still largely based on my printed yes. bible where I read yes. that passage. Yes. So there is something to that but what I have found though is when I'm reading uh I'm a huge highlighter 
And I mean, I go through like probably 20 of these a year, but when I'm reading something on Kindle, being able to just with a finger highlight and then right. cut and paste it, okay, that is a game changer. So what I've tried to do at Disciple Dojo is we have one of our videos is, I, it's a cheesy, like I call it a Bible hack. It's not a hack. It's just how to digitally study the Bible. And it what you just said involves original language analysis or original text. If you don't know the languages, a translation, combining it in a di digital format with a space that you then print out for handwritten notes. So you're able yes. to do the work digitally, but then make your notes analog. And I, I think that's, to me, that's the way it's got to be. Yeah. Uh, is bridging the two I, people, it's, one or the other. And I'm like, it's a combination. Yeah. Yeah. There's elements yeah. to both. I mean, I, I thank God for the, the digital. It really helps you to just cut and paste stuff. It's really great, but I got to study it with my pen. Yeah. Different, different purposes. That's how I look at it is they're tools with different purposes. And there were some people that bemoaned the printing press when it came oh, yeah. out because yeah. there's something to handwriting that the scribes do. And that's true. Uh, but you know, I think that, yeah, I, I, I think there's room for both and there's going to have to be, right? but we're doing this digitally. So yeah, I'm yeah. thankful for that. Yeah, me too. Well, we are, we're right at two hours. And uh, so I am so thankful to have you on. How can people who want to follow you or read your works or engage with you in any way that you prefer? Uh, if you want to give any kind of plug for that, this would be the time to do it. How could people find out more about Richard Middleton and his work? So if you go to jrichardmiddleton.com, it's a WordPress blog. I don't blog a whole lot right now. I don't have much time because I'm writing other things right now. Um, but you can go there and you can find PDFs of most articles I've written and links right. to all the books. Um, you can find a lot of information about me. There's a contact form. You can always contact me and I'll email you back. I actually always email people back. I may not be able to fully answer your questions. People have all kinds of weird, strange questions, but <laughs> I'll try my best and we'll connect. And then you'll get my email through that and we can talk mm -hmm. further. That's wonderful. Folks, I want to encourage you check out, if you haven't, Abraham Silence, um, Richard's books on eschatology, just everything. Yeah, read his stuff. He's one of the scholars that I am fortunate that we are connected through Facebook and, and have been introduced to his work. I have benefited tremendously. And I know if you are a typical viewer of Disciple Dojo, this is one of the people that I think you should know. And that's why I wanted to have him here. Um, so you could meet and hear his sweet Jamaican accent. How fun is that? So I'm gonna have you just come on and read random things sometimes just because it's nice hearing it. <laughs> uh, when I when I taught two courses in Jamaica, I taught them entirely in Jamaican dialect. <laughs> I bet. Totally. Was... You wouldn't have understood. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I I have traveled in in the Caribbean. Is that right? All right, man. Yeah, right. a couple of places. And in each place I've gone to, yes, there's been tourist English that they speak to me, and then there's been what they speak to each other. Yeah. And code switching, man. You can code switch yeah. so quickly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that, that you want to throw out there or ask I'm me sure, or anything? I'm like sure that? there's things we didn't cover, but I don't need to throw them out there. So I'll just give you, I'll just tell you goodbye in, in Jamaica. It's what we yes, normally please. say. We say, all right, brother, walk good now, walk good. <laughs> all right. Walk good now, walk good. Is that you could walk? you could be driving, but it's walk, yeah. Walk good. Yeah. yeah. Love it. I'm 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 gonna add Jamaican native 
dialect to my reservoir now. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, my friend, thank you so much. Are you um, are you going to be at SBL in Denver yeah. this year? Yeah, I'll be okay. at SBL. Okay, yeah, I, this a, will be my first one that I've gone to as a So there's member. a panel discussion on the book, Abraham's Silence, Monday afternoon. You should go to it, 3.45. Okay, okay. It's yeah, be I will. Yeah. I'm going to hope to connect in person and uh, yeah, yeah, let me buy you let's a cup get, of coffee or something. Let's do that. Let's do that, yeah. Well, that was such a great conversation with Richard Middleton. And I, again, I can't recommend his book enough, Abraham's Silence. It's going to give you some stuff to wrestle with and how you read scripture and how you even understand the God that we serve. There's just so much in it worth reading. And I also do, again, I want to plug his book, A New Heaven and a New Earth. I don't know if you can really see that because of the screen brightness. Reclaiming Biblical Eschatology. This was the work that I discovered uh, Richard's work primarily through after it being recommended and my own interest in eschatology. And I'm so glad that I did. So I'm going to put a link in the description below to those as well as to his website. If you have questions that you'd like to ask him, reach out to him and uh, through his website and his contact form. Same thing here at Disciple Dojo. If I can answer any questions or you ever want to chat about anything, uh, you can reach me through our contact page over on DiscipleDojo.org. Just click the contact me. I think it's called contact me. I can't remember. So thanks for watching. Stay tuned for more Disciple Dojo long form interviews with people I think are interesting and worth talking to. We'll see you next time. Take care.